Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to Revelation 14. We're going to be looking today at the 144,000 once again, but we're going to see them from a position in the millennial kingdom operating from a position of victory. And that's the title of today's message is Operating from Victory. A lot of things going on in the world, a lot of crazy things happening, especially to Christians. And as you can see on your signs of the times, we sometimes note things that are going on in the world. You know, the craziness that's out there. You see on your signs of the times, there was a seventh grade class that was given an assignment to learn Islam. And before you know it, the teacher has them writing calligraphy and writing down one of the pillars and affirming that Muhammad is a prophet. And you're thinking, well, that's crazy. And you hear about today that what California is doing with this AB 2953, which basically prevents counselors from giving reparative therapy to people wanting to leave the homosexual and lesbian lifestyle. That's illegal if this, this uh, AB bill passes. And what that would do to California, because once it starts in California, it, it permeates through the entire country. And so you, you see the assault on Christian values. And then I don't know if you heard the New Yorker wrote an article about Chick-fil-A coming into New York and they're calling it creepy infiltration. Can you believe that? Calling Chick-fil-A a creepy infiltration. And what was the creepiness that the New Yorker put out? It's because they carry Christian traditionalism. And you think it's just insane what we're seeing. I don't know if some of you saw Mike Pompeo go before the hearings before he got confirmed, but he went in front of a, an individual by the name of Cory Booker. And this, I don't know if you saw, you can see YouTube this, but Cory Booker just wouldn't let him answer, grilled him, because Mike Pompeo is an evangelical Christian, believes a lot of what you and I believe about the end times and whatnot. And they just grilled him. And, you know, just, is being gay a perversion? Do you think it's appropriate for two gays to marry? And do you believe that gay sex is a perversion? I mean, they just grilled him and, and broke constitutional law by asking him about his religious ideals. But you see this all around in America, this constant assault on Christian values as if that was some type of weird thing. Our country was founded on Judeo-Christian ethics. When you talk to anyone in our military, that ethic went through our branches. And of course, a lot of times, like in Vietnam, they lied about what our soldiers were doing and things of that nature. But our soldiers were keeping that Judeo-Christian ethics. There's no one better than the United States military of keeping Judeo-Christian ethics. Honestly, if you go outside of other armies, let's say, for instance, like the Army of the UN. Have you ever seen those guys? These guys are morally decrepit. They rape and molest the people in the areas that they're in. The UN soldiers are degenerates. So when you see this attack on Christianity and Judeo-Christian ethics, it doesn't bode well for our country, especially when we came from that background. And so we're seeing the onslaught. And the point we're trying to make about this is this. If you don't see the big picture, you'll lose yourself in the problems. You've got to be able to see the big picture in order to have a balanced frame of reference so that you don't get caught up in a lot of this and get bogged down because it's constant. And it's a constant negative, by the way. And what you're going to learn from this scene in Revelation is God puts on the brakes and says, take a break. And step back and see the bigger picture. And that's important for you and I to survive. Because you can get very myopic. I can get very myopic in my own problems. And I can't see outside of my own problems. And I don't see what God's doing. I don't see what God's doing in the world. And I don't see what God's doing in my life. So what the Bible wants us to do is keep multiple narratives going on in our lives. Not to ignore our problems, but to understand they're there. But there's a bigger picture happening at the same time and to keep those things concurrently going because if you lose focus you can get off the rails you can get off the path and get into a lot of bad mindset to where you get depressed and you're not thinking straight anymore you're out of reality and things of that nature so what you're going to see in the context of this is it's revelation 14 in revelation 12 and 13 you have seen an onslaught of the antichrist 
persecuting the Jews, him coming to power, the false prophet coming to power. So basically, the last two chapters has been extremely evil, extremely troubling. And so what God does in 14 is he backs up and says, look at the bigger picture. I want you to see the bigger picture that's going on. And I think that's the application we're going to take at the end of this from it. So we're going to look at the 144,000, but you're going to look at them from a victory position. And this is going to be important. Just to refresh our minds a little bit, let's do a little refresher with Revelation 7 so you understand the 144,000 and who they are, what they do. We covered this weeks ago, probably back in January, I believe. But again, here's just a little refresher. Revelation 7 talks about them a little bit and says, Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and to see, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So these 144,000 are the servants of God in the tribulation, and they have the seal of God. We have the seal of God, by the way, in salvation. That seal apparently can be seen in the demonic realm, and it actually gives them protection. So God seals them from not only the demonic realm hurting them, but also the physical catastrophes and the judgments that are coming upon the earth in the tribulation. So they're protected in that sense. This is in contrast to the mark of the beast, that Satan will counterfeit his mark on his followers, and God puts his mark on his followers. And that is able to be seen in the spiritual realm, by the way. Let's continue on. It says, And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Now we get to start specific to refresh our minds. It's not just 144,000 in the tribulation of just anybody. It's specifically from Israel. It's Jewish servants of the Lord. 144, if you remember, we talked about Hebrew gematria. When you see numbers like that, they all have meanings. The gematria of the 144,000, the symbolic meaning behind that, 144 is 12 times 12. It represents, in Hebrew understanding, God's power, authority, and perfect governmental formation, or foundation, I should say. It symbolizes the completeness of the nation of Israel, which makes sense. They're first fruits. And all Israel will eventually be saved. So it's pointing to that final fulfillment of Israel being saved and their form of government of being the head of the nations rather than the tail. A thousand, when you see a thousand in Scripture, it represents the restraining of evil or spiritual guidance or protection. That's why the kingdom age is a thousand years because it's the rod of iron. It restrains evil. And so the evil that's happening during the tribulation is restrained from them so they can complete their tasks of what they're doing. Then it gets real specific and tells you from what tribes they're from. And of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. And the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Asher, 12,000 were sealed. And of the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 were sealed. And the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 were sealed. And of the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 were sealed. And of the tribe of Levi, 12,000 were sealed. And of the tribe of Ishakar, 12,000 were sealed. And of the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 were sealed. And the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 were sealed. And the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. Now, why does it go through that? It wants to tell you that we're dealing with ethnic Israel. We are not dealing with spiritual anything. This is ethnic, biological Jews from these specific tribes. And again, the people will say, well, we don't know what the records are when the temple burnt down in 70 AD. Well, God knows, and God pulls them out to do this specific task. And again, like we've talked about, this scripture predicts Israel's return to the land, that in order for this to happen, Israel has to be a major player in the end times, and we do see that happening now, even in current events. They're back in the land. They're a united nation again. They've come together as a nation. They're a military power, and they're the center of world conflict. That's what's happening. And so out of that country will come these 144,000 Jews to do a specific task. Now, this specific task was given to them, and we see this in the Olivet Discourse, with our Lord. And he mentioned what their task will be. Just again to refresh our minds, he says this in Matthew 24. Then they will deliver, they is talking about Israel, 
deliver you to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. It's talking about Israel. And then many will be offended and betray one another. So Israel will start betraying each other and will hate one another. So some Jews will betray their other Jewish brethren to the Antichrist. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many out of Israel. There'll be tons of them. And one of them will be on the scene, obviously, the false prophet himself. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. This familial love between brothers and family members will wane. So they'll turn each other in to the Antichrist. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. This is not talking about salvation per se. It's talking about physical salvation, that if you live through the whole time, you'll be saved physically by Messiah when he comes back. Now, here's their task. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. This is their task. And it's linked to Revelation 7 because we see in Revelation 7 that a great multitude comes to faith in Messiah. A great revival comes because of their efforts. So these Jewish 144,000 are given the task to complete the Great Commission. The church doesn't complete the Great Commission. The 144,000 do. And they're sealed to be kept alive the whole time. Now, a lot of people say, why do they have to be Jewish? Why can't they be Gentiles? Because it's extremely important. I think it's a practical point. I want you to understand something about when we send a missionary on the foreign mission field, what it takes and how long it takes to get them there. You have to go to Bible school for four years. Then you have to go to seminary for three years. Then you have to learn a language after that for two years. So you're looking before we can get somebody on a mission field about nine to ten years prep time before they're on the ground. That's today. But if you have the rapture and you need evangelists and you need missionaries, it's only seven years, so you don't have time to get someone prepped for that. But it makes perfect sense if you're going to use Jews. Why? Most Jews know multiple languages because of the dispersion. Some Jews know up to five languages. So the language barrier is not a problem. Most Jews have a very good understanding of the Old Testament. So if the Holy Spirit started convicting them and working on them, they already have a good background in the Old Testament that will help them with their New Testament, and they can get on the ground pretty quick. And the other thing about this is this. If Israel's going to come to faith, and these are the first fruits, most Jews listen to other Jews. They're very suspect of listening to Gentiles talk about Jesus. But if another Jew shares with them about the Jewishness of Messiah, they're more reticent to listen to that than it coming from you and I. They actually distrust us. It's a hard leap for them to make. So when you look at all the practicalness, it makes perfect sense why he would choose Jews to do this work for Israel's revival for the language barrier, for the understanding of theology background that Jews typically have. Makes perfect sense. That's a little bit of review. So now we go into the text for today, and this is in Revelation 14. And let's look at them having completed their task. That's where we're going. We're projecting out into the kingdom age. Verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion... And with him, 144,000. I'm going to show you a picture. The picture of the scene is Mount Zion is the Temple Mount. It's the peak there where the Temple Mount is. Obviously, the Muslim Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aqsa Mosque are on top of that. But that's Mount Zion right here. Okay, city of David goes right down the, the way and Mount Moriah is to the north. So the picture that John is seeing, he's seeing Jesus on Mount Zion with the 144,000. Now, we're not mentioned, but we're actually there as well because we accompany Jesus at the second coming. So what John has done is he's projected out, out of the tribulation to a stance of victory right there in Jerusalem where Messiah will stand. And this is important, the idea of standing. When you see the term standing with Jesus, it means a completed action with abiding results. Well, what's the completed action? The action is the second coming. The action is to vanquish his enemies, the Antichrist, and destroy his armies. And the blood is as high as a horse's bridle when he's done. 
So he's standing there in victory with the 144,000. Notice it calls Jesus in this passage a lamb. Not a lion, but a lamb. And the reason it's doing that, John is referencing that this victory was won by sacrifice. And it went all the way back to the cross. So anytime you see reference to the lamb, it's referring to the sacrifice. The victory has been won. And also the sacrifice of witnessing to the whole world that the 144,000 did. They sacrificed their lives. And you'll see in just a bit. So again, just to show you another scene, another picture. It's after this scene when Jesus' foot hits the Mount of Olives. It's the victory scene. So what I want you to get in mind is what John is trying to do is show you the end game, the bigger picture, where it's going. So if you were a tribulation saint going through the worst time in history, this would be very important for you to see that all is not lost. You win at the end. As troubling as this life is, this is where the victory is going. And you'll be there standing in the middle of it. It's like saying you won the Super Bowl, so play the game. You won the NBA Finals. You won the Masters. You win. And so he's trying to tell the tribulation saints, this is what victory will look like. You know, in the old days, I don't know if they still have it, they would, after the Super Bowl, they would find the quarterback or somebody and they'd say, hey, what are you going to do? You've just won the Super Bowl. What's next? And they go, I'm going to Disneyland. And remember that? They used to have, I don't know if they still do, But that's the kind of mentality John's trying to do is pan back and say, here's the end result. You win. As bad as your life gets right now, you win. You will be on that mountain with Jesus, overlooking all the enemies that ever tried to prevent the second coming, and you will be there. So what has happened? Why does he need to say this? Because the second coming is trying to be prevented by Satan. He's trying to prevent Jesus from fulfilling the promises he made. The Abrahamic, the Davidic, the land covenant, the messianic kingdom promises. He's trying to prevent that. He's trying to attack the reputation of God. Because if he can prevent the second coming by wiping out every Jew on the planet, then he can say God is a liar. He's not made good on his promises. And then he, he will say, you must not be able to judge me because you're a liar. He's trying to get off on a technicality. See, the 144,000 represent the first fruits of Israel. It is incumbent upon Israel to receive Messiah in order for the second coming to happen. So the second coming is predicated on Israel's acceptance of him. That's why the Jews are in the middle of all the heat they're at right now and will be in the tribulation where Antichrist tries to wipe every one of them out. That's been the issue. It's a spiritual issue. A lot of people can't figure this out. Why is there so much anti-Semitism? Because it's a spiritual issue. But God's going to see Israel through it, and he's going to see the 144,000. And that's the proof that they make it through is this victory scene. They made it. Despite all the efforts of Satan trying to wipe them out, they made it. What if this is, is a typology pointing back. It's a fulfillment of a typology, I should say pointing back to something that happened in Israel's history. And you know it very well. I'm sure you have talked to your kids and grandkids about this one scene in Daniel. Do you remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? And they would not bow a knee and worship an idol. So what did Nebuchadnezzar do? He threw them in the fiery furnace. But yet, as you recall, who was in the fiery furnace? Someone like the Son of Man. And kept them from burning and preserved them all the way through the fiery furnace. Do you remember that story? That was a typology for the 144,000 and Israel's remnant. That they will go through the fire of the tribulation and make it through. Because the Son of Man will protect them. He will guide them all the way through the fiery furnace. And so that scene is pointing to that typology. That's the fulfillment of that. It's the Shadrach, Meshach, and the Bendigo. And you remember that scene right there. That's what it was a picture of. Let's return back to the text. And it says, having his father's name written on their foreheads. 
Again, this is referring to their seal. This is what protected them. This is what's going to get them out of tribulation. But it refers to Deuteronomy 6. And the Jews knew this well. It says, bind them on your forehead. Bind them on your arms. This is what the phylacteries, this is what the phylacteries pointed to of Deuteronomy 6. That there was a seal on God's people and he would protect them. He will see them through it. And that's the same thing you and I can take from this. Whatever problem you're dealing with right now, he will see you through it. He's not going to sometimes remove you from it, but he's going to go with you through the fire. And he promises you, like the Son of Man was with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I will be there with you through it. I will never leave you or forsake you, and you will come out on the other side. That's his promise. So go ahead and go with me. I will be with you. All the time in the Old Testament... The Bible characters were always saying, are you going to be with me? Are you going to be with me? Are you going to be with me? And he would always affirm, I will be with you, Moses. I will be with you, Gideon. I will be with you. And that's the same thing he's saying to them as he says to us. That's because we have the seal of God on us. Verse 2, and I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters and like the voice of loud thunder. That's a reference to the voice of Christ. That's what he sounds like. And that's a reference to Revelation 1. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. Now, we don't know who's playing these harps, but they are playing them. And music is coming out of heaven. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. The four living creatures are cherubim. The elders are the church. So this is a heavenly scene, but the music is spilling out of heaven onto the millennial scene where Christ is and the remnant of Israel is there. And they're hearing this music coming out of heaven. Now, anytime you see the term, a new song, this is important. You'll see Moses sing songs or Mary will sing a song. It's always their song. It's a new song. When you see someone singing a new song in Scripture, what it means is this, that as a consequence of what they have went through with God, as he was with them through this, they have a now deeper understanding and a clear grasp of the person and work of Messiah or Yahweh. And so because of that, they can sing a song that is indicative of their experience. And in a lot of ways, the application is everybody in this room has their own song. Basically, it's another way of saying their testimony. What do you mean? You have went through your own experiences in life. And all of you could sit there and describe, I've went through hell, Brandon. I've literally went through hell with all the problems I've went through. I've lost people in my life. I've dealt with all kinds of issues. I've lost money. I've lost relationships. And everybody has their story of what they went through. It's their personal hell, if you want to call it that way. It's what they've been dealing with all their life. And if they've been obedient to the Lord, that God has walked with them in fellowship through all of this. And at the end of their life, this is their song. This is why they get a new name. This name that they will get, that everyone gets, will be attributed to what you went through with the Lord. That as he helped you through it, it will be a song only you can sing. Because it's indicative of your personal relationship with him. And you can explain your testimony and how the Lord brought you through in your victory position in the end. And everybody has that story. You should start thinking about it. You should start replaying. Go back in your life and look at your history and look at how the Lord has been with you the whole time. So many people said, I I should be dead, Brandon. With all the stuff I went through, I should be dead. But he was there with me. He prevented me. Or other people say, I should be divorced. For acting like a knucklehead, I should be divorced. But you're not. And he's taking you through things. That's your song. That's your testimony. And you will get a new name in the future for it. But that's what's happening here. And it says, look, and no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. You know why no one could learn it? Because they didn't go through it. They don't understand what it was like to go through the tribulation and go, come under the attacks of the Antichrist and the whore of Babylon and go through the hell that they went through. So only they know it. And, and that it's a personal thing between them and Jesus. And it's the same is true about you and I. No one knows 
the personal hell that you've went through other than Jesus. A few people might know some of the ins and outs, but they don't know it at the depths that Jesus knows. That's your song. And no one can learn it. I can relate to some things that similar I went through with you, but sometimes I can't. We're limited as human beings. It's a song only you know. And that's between you and the Lord. That's why no one can learn their song. We won't know it because we won't go through the tribulation. But they will. And they will express in their song, as all believers do, whether it was Moses' song coming out of Egypt or Mary's, whoever, song, the song of the church, it's typically a song of deliverance. So when you look at your life and you want to look at your song, it will be a song of deliverance that he saw you through it all. He will deliver you. Doesn't mean he's going to take the problems away, but he will take you through it and deliver you one day. Now, the characteristics of them is important. This is where we're going to derive a lot of the application. So we jump to verse 4, and you're going to see their characteristics of what kind of individuals are we talking about here. These are all-stars, by the way. These are all-star saints. We're all saints. But these guys, whole new level. And I, under, I, I understand why. They need it for the time period they're in. Hard times, like I said, require strong men. And this is the hardest time in human history, and this is what's required. Verse 4 says this, These are the ones who are not defiled with women, for they are virgins. And this is an interesting passage. It's not an indictment on, on marriage or anything like that. But it shows you they're not just Jewish people. They're Jewish males who are virgin. Why is this important? I thought marriage is sanctified by God. It is. But you must understand the context. You must understand the time period. The time period is a tribulation. The time period is not a time to be starting to have a family in the tribulation when all hell is breaking loose. When the judgments of God are falling, it is not a time to start a family. It's a time to survive. That's what it is. And because of the task they've been given to evangelize the entire world, they don't have time to marry. They don't have time to start a family. They've got to be about the Lord's work and getting as many people saved and on the rescue boat as they possibly can. So they're on a mission. That's what the text is trying to say. And the idea is that they're not defiled by women has to do with they don't get into sexual immorality. They are not stuck in that particular sin. Why would it mention that? Why does it have to talk about that? Because it is the number one issue that derails most Christians even today in the church is sexual immorality. Whether it's an addiction, whether it's whatever, Satan has figured out if he wants to derail Christians, hit them in the sexual arena and you'll decue them. You'll disqualify them. You'll put them on the shelf. They won't be able to come out of that and they'll lose their effectiveness. And so, as a counselor pastor, I understand it now. It's the number one topic that everyone is dealing with. It's a problem. Most churches are not even addressing it. They won't even talk about it. But it is an undercurrent of one of the biggest undercurrents we have ever seen in church history is problems in the sexual arena. And those run the gamut. So it totally makes sense when I read the text. They're not defiled with men. They're not involved in sexual immorality. The one thing that's d destroyed the church in a lot of ways, or hurt the church, I should say, is not going to hurt them. They're not going there. It's not even a problem for them. And that's good because they can complete the task. So many people, men and women, serving the Lord, get derailed because of this area. So many men and women can't even serve because they get derailed in this area. You know the old 80-20 rule or whatever it is that 20% of the people do 80% of the work? You ever heard that? That's true for churches. But people don't ever tell you the backstory. They say, wow, we have this church of hundreds and thousands of people or whatever, you know, whatever church it is. And they say, how come we don't have more workers? You know why? Sexual problems. That's the problem. The pastor knows it. He can't put them in positions. Well, how about this guy? Or how about this gal? Nope, can't do it. You don't know what I know. Can't do it. Oh, they'd be great. No, can't do it. 
So when you try to figure out, how come these churches can't get help? How come these churches don't have more people serving? How come they don't have more men serving? It's that area. I'm just going to be frank with you. It's that area. That's why you don't see it. That's why, well, I don't understand why we can't get all this help. If you knew what I knew. People are struggling in this area. So I totally get this text. They're not encumbered by this problem. And hence, they're free of it. Totally makes sense. I get it. This was the number one issue that DQ'd Israel with sexual defilement, if you recall the Old Testament. It was the number one thing. If Balaam wanted to derail Israel, what did he do? He had all these women come out and and have sex with the men and totally derailed Israel. Got them off track, right? It's a constant theme. Not anymore. Not here. Let's return to the text. These are the ones who were not defiled with women for their virgins. These are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. Now, this is important. This is talking about their loyal love for Messiah. This is talking about also their reward for their loyal love. They followed the call, didn't buckle, didn't buckle under the pressure, didn't try to escape, didn't compromise. They went full bore towards the call and nothing prevented them. They didn't mind not having a family or having a wife. They didn't encumbered by sin. They stuck to the task which shows their loyal love to Messiah. See, this is part of an application. How close you follow Jesus is the degree of your loyalty to him, is the degree of your love for him. Everybody in the room that says they're a Christian claims love for Jesus. They would all say that. But the question then becomes, what kind of love or what kind of degree of love do you love him? Are you willing to take the heat that they're willing to take? What do you mean? Well, in the tribulation, to be a follower of Messiah, you're going to be hated of all nations. It just said that in Matthew 24. You will be hated. They won't like you. You won't be able to play Christian nice guy anymore. They will simply hate you, hunt you down, try to kill you. That's how bad it gets. Now, it's not that bad here, but nonetheless, have you seen the hatred that's going on in our society towards Christians? They hate us, and they're not, they're not, they're not going to hide it. They're showing it. Look what's happening in our culture. You have to be willing to be hated in your loyal love for Jesus. The world will hate you. You have to be willing to take a stand. What are these guys going to be doing? They're going to be going out, sharing the gospel, telling everybody the truth, which people don't like. They don't want to be told the truth. See, they're willing to be seen as evil. Are you willing to be seen as evil? Am I willing to be seen as evil by this culture? Like Mike Pompeo, like I gave you an example. He was being badgered by that senator. By the way, that senator is the same guy Willow Creek, Bill Hybels, had in his church, said he was a great leader who blasted Mike Pompeo. But Mike Pompeo stayed there, and he answered the question. He goes, I've been consistent. This is what I have said in the past. God bless him. It takes a lot of guts. It takes a lot of steel in your soul to sit there and be badgered by the left for your Christian views. Are you willing to be seen as a racist? Are you willing to be seen as extreme or cultic or intolerant towards other people? See, that's what's being asked of you and asked of me. And if you're willing to do it, it shows your loyalty to the Messiah. And that's what they do. It shows their loyalty. Jesus said it this way in Luke 14, talking about discipleship. Now, great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. So the context, obviously, is discipleship, not salvation. He is talking simply about discipleship. But notice what he says. You've got to hate your father and mother. Your own children you must hate. What do you mean? Hebraic way of saying, I must be the priority, and your family must come second to me. That's what he's talking about. That's the Hebraic way of saying priorities. He cannot be my disciple. And he goes, and whoever does not bear his cross 
and come after me cannot be my disciple. What is the idea of bearing the cross? This is not taking like your personal burdens of what's going to happen, you know, when you go to work this week. It's not what he's talking about. The reference to the cross is taking on personal shame from the culture. Because going upon a cross on his day was taking on public humility, public shaming. So the idea of embracing your cross is not in, embracing a, a, a pain in your side or a pain in your leg or arthritis. That's not bearing your cross. Bearing your cross means I'm willing to be publicly humiliated by this world. Whoa. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. You know what he's trying to say is, before you decide to jump on the loyalty to Jesus train of discipleship, you better count the cost. Because if you get on this train... And you shrink back, people are going to mock you. They're going to say, you're spineless. You're a wimp. So don't get on this train unless you're ready to get on it, is what he's saying. Or what king going to war against another king does not sit first and consider whether he is able to, with 10,000 to meet him who comes up with him with uh, 20,000. You've got to be willing to meet the task. Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So if you can't do it, Don't fight the battle, is what he's saying. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. This is a totally different issue. It's a discipleship issue. It's a a, not a salvation issue. Salvation is believing in Jesus Christ, death, burial, and resurrection. It's simple as that, right? God did all the work. Discipleship, another ball game. And quite frankly, we're seeing a lot of Christians that can't deal with with the shame. They don't want to be intolerant. They don't want to be seen as mean. They don't want to be seen as a racist or whatever, the bigot, religious bigot or whatever. Think about this. The other day, Pastor Robert Jeffress, First Baptist Dallas, Mitt Romney came out and said he called him a a religious bigot. You remember that? For what? Because he was saying that Mormons are a cult and Islam is a false religion and stuff. So a pastor saying that as now being scrutinized for being a religious bigot. When did that change all of a sudden in our country? Actually, for the last few decades. Never used to be like that. We called the cult a cult and the false religion a false religion. Now they're saying, oh, you can't do that now. You're a religious bigot. You willing to take that on? You got to count the cost. You might lose your job. You might lose that promotion. You might lose business. You might lose your position. Somewhere. I'm just telling you. Jesus is saying, before you take that on, you need to count it if you're going to go there. But he says, if you don't, you can't be my disciple. You can be saved, but you can't be my follower. Because that's what I'm requiring is loyal love from you. And but obviously, they had it. I'm going to tell you where the pressure is going to be. We obviously understand it's coming from society, right? You can get it at work. The world, I'm going to tell you where the pressure is going to be. It's going to be from your own family. That's where it's going to be. People in your family or immediate family or extended family are going to act like knuckleheads. Okay? It's going to put it out there. And you're going to be forced to take a stand against what they're doing. That's what's going to happen. That's what's happening now to a lot of people. Their families have painted them into a corner. And they're left with, okay, what do I do? Like, this is a black and white issue. Yeah, I know. That's going to be the test for you and me and our loyalty to Jesus. It's going to be our own family. What did Jesus say about your family? You must hate your father and mother, put them in a second priority to me. And it's not going to be like they love Jesus and I love Jesus. It's going to be like this. It's going to be the principles of Jesus. It's going to be the laws of Messiah. That's what's going to be at stake. It's not going to be the person of Jesus. It's going to be his laws. Like gay marriage is wrong. And you're going to have to take a stand against that. 
or living together is fornication, you're going to have to take a stand against that. And say, hey, man, you can't shack up like that. What are you guys thinking? You're going to have to take stands on just black and white issues like that. It's not going to be, well, it's an attitude adjustment. It's not going to be that. It's going to be black and white. It's going to be there in front of you. And you're going to have to say, hey, dude, you got to stop. You can't be doing drugs anymore. you got to stop. It's going to be stuff like that. The question you and I have to answer is, what side will we land on? Because I can tell you what's going on with a lot of Christians today. They are compromising for their own family. The biggest supporters of those in sin, whatever the sin is, is their own family who enables them and keeps them in the sin by the enablement. Because why would I change if all my family supports what I'm doing? If I can still have the same relationships with my family and act like nothing's happening and go have a Martha Stewart uh, Thanksgiving dinner at their house and everyone acts like nothing's happening, but there's a big fat elephant in the room. Why would I want to change my behavior if never, no one's ever going to call me out on it? No one's ever going to make me feel pain anymore. Don't get caught in that game, guys. Be like the 144,000. They are loyal to Jesus alone. That's it. No compromise. No giving away. Focused. Let's return back to the text. These were redeemed from among men, being first fruits to God, first fruits of Israel, the challah of the lump that Paul talked about, and to the lamb. And in their mouth, this is interesting, no deceit, found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne. Those two things I want to capitalize on for our application. Their mouth is without deceit. It's in, in the Greek, it's dalas. It's, the root word of this would be to, to be a, de, a decoy, to bait and switch is the idea. You know, it doesn't just simply mean they're truth speakers. They're not ever going to try to intentionally deceive anybody. They're truth speakers. Now, this is in contrast to what's going on at the time. There's false prophets running all over Israel and all over the world. The false prophet is on the scene. The Antichrist is on the scene, signs and wonders. But these guys will be the only people on planet Earth, along with the two witnesses, speaking the truth. Do you ever find yourself alone in speaking the truth and that no one's talking right anymore? Everyone's out to lunch, fake news, fake this, out of reality type of talk. And you're becoming a shrinking group that speaks the truth. I was talking to one of my pastor friends back east, and he go, I go, it seems like the remnant's shrinking. He goes, yeah, I know. He goes, I'm beginning to know everyone's name in the remnant. That's how much it's shrinking. And I said, I know, it's getting worse and worse. And so the idea is being able to tell the truth is getting a smaller and smaller group, especially among the pastors, by the way. I don't trust anyone with the name pastor in front of them, including myself. (laughs) Be careful about those guys. The thing is, they're also without fault before the throne of God. The way the Greek is saying is actually giving you a very Jewish understanding of it. It has to do with being spotless or without blemish. When you got a lamb and you would take it to sacrifice, you had to inspect the lamb for four days to make sure there was no spot or blemish on it before you could sacrifice it, right? And it's referring to that. It's making a remez to that. In what way? Having the term being without fault or without spot or blemish on a spiritual level means this. It means not being tainted with any false doctrine or false political system in their theology. In other words, their theology is pure. Pure. There's no gaps. They don't believe in some weird idiosyncratic thing over here. They don't have some weird Marxist taint in their theology that gives them a social gospel. They don't have any weird liberation theology. They don't have any weird Mormonism or whatever, Catholicism. It is pure. I get it. They need that for the task they're given. 
Because everyone at that time will be infected by the beast system, the one world government, the mentality of the world. And they have to come against that. So what's required of them is pure theology. There's no gap. That, by the way, is how you and I are to develop our own theology. We are not to have any gaps or undeveloped areas. We are, we are to figure out our theology, get it figured out, and not be lazy and not. People who don't get their theology figured out are, are, are simply going to be deceived by false doctrine. That's how it works. So if you don't get your theology, you are temptable. That gap that exists that you haven't figured out about this or that will one day be used against you to tempt you away, to get you to apostatize. They can't apostatize because their theology is squared up. They know what they believe and they know why they believe. They're not trying to figure things out on the job. They have already done that. That's extremely important, even for the day when we see the great apostasy happening. Let's return then to the scene of where they're at. and show you a picture again of the Mount of Olives, the victory scene. And this is where the application is going. They're with the lamb. They're on the victory scene at the second coming. Jesus vanquished his enemies. They're there with him along with the remnant of Israel. We're accompanying with them. What is going on here? What's the application we're supposed to take away from this? We have to see the big picture of victory in order to not become problem-oriented. That's what God's doing in this scene in Revelation 14. He wants us to see the picture of victory. We're working from victory. If we focus simply on our problems, you can rest assured you will become myopic. You will become short-sighted. You'll go into depression. You'll get out of reality because you'll simply just focus in on your problems and you won't see anything beyond your problems. That's what God's trying to do. He's trying to keep a multiple narrative going on in your head so you stay in reality. What do you mean? Why is this important to see the big picture? Because it affects three areas in you. It affects how you feel. It affects how you act. And it affects how you learn. If you don't see the big picture and see your problems, guess how you feel? You feel depressed. You can't get over this. Anxiety-oriented. Stressed angry. You feel bad. You feel threatened. You're always on edge. That's because you're problem-oriented if you feel that way. How will you act if you're problem-oriented? You'll push others away. You'll go in react mode. You'll get aggressive, become angry, withdraw. Stop. You'll, you'll, you'll be consumed with self-loathing. And how will you learn? If you're problem-oriented, all you will do is try to survive. You will not learn what God is trying to teach you in the problem. You will just be survival mode. And your suffering won't benefit you. You will suffer the pain, but it won't benefit you if you don't see the bigger picture because you're problem-oriented. If you see the bigger picture, you're going to ask yourself, what is God trying to teach me through all of this? And then that suffering becomes redemptive. Makes all the difference. But here's the deal. You and I have a choice in all of this. Let me go a little bit deeper and hang with me. The 104 to 4,000 made a choice of discipleship. They're going all the way, man. Sold out for Jesus. We're going to do the task. Keep the big picture in mind. But the other path is called the lazy path. The lazy path. It's all through the book of Proverbs, the lazy path. What do you mean? The lazy path is not some dude on a couch vegging out, watching TV all the day. That's not what the scriptures talk about being lazy. Most people think when they read the word in English, that's what it means. It's just vegging out on a couch. Quite frankly, there's a lot of lazy people in our culture. I get that, but that's not what it's talking about. Lazy people in the Bible are called sluggards. Sluggards. And what it means is that they try to avoid pain at all costs. That's what a sluggard is. That's what a lazy person in the Bible is. 
Lazy people in the world sense can be very active. Some of the most lazy people are the busiest people I've ever seen. They don't practice Christianity. They practice busyanity. They're coming and going, doing this and that, yada, yada, yada. And they're busy. And you're like, well, they're not really lazy. They work hard. No, no, no. no. Scripturally, what a sluggard is, they refuse to deal with pain. They refuse to deal with the pain in their own life. They're escape artists. They're always running. They won't do anything that requires sacrifice. They won't do anything that makes them a little uncomfortable. You think about the 144,000. How uncomfortable are you going to be running around the tribulation, sharing the gospel with Satan and Antichrist and the false prophet running after you? Wow. So you have two paths. See, when you get the bigger picture, it will help you not be a sluggard. If you become problem-oriented, you will drift towards being a sluggard because in problems, you're simply trying to avoid pain. And you, by definition, will not think you're lazy, but by biblical definition, will be defined as a sluggard because you're avoiding pain. That's what the problem is. And most people don't see it. Well, I just want my life to go nice and neat and tie a big bow around it, and I just want to be left alone. Sluggard! sluggard. I want to serve Jesus when my schedule clears up. Sluggard. It's because they are avoiding pain. That's the problem. And get this principle right here. You have to, because this is what the the 144,000 learn. Pain first, pay off later. You can't reverse the order. If you reverse the order, you're going to get this. Avoid pain now, and the payoff will never come. And more pain will come eventually. Bad pain. Non-redemptive pain. This is what the 144,000 do. They embrace their pain, embrace the call, and they go for it. And because of that, they're standing on, on Mount Zion in victory, celebrating the coming of the Messiah, the second coming of the Messiah. So we can learn a lesson from them. Am I going to embrace the cross of my life, deal with my pain, but see a bigger redemptive story behind it? Or am I going to be problem-oriented and then start running from my problems, not engaging it, and create more problems? You have a choice, and I have a choice. And that choice is coming upon every one of us real quick. You're going to have to choose loyalty to Jesus or not. You're not going to be able to back away from this one. It's my job to prepare you. Here it comes. Ready or not, here it comes. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.